To me, that's part of what neurotheology is about, which is being a little bit more open and understanding and compassionate about uh, other, other points of view, which I think are very important for us to take into consideration. In this interview, I'm joined by Dr. Andrew Newberg. Dr. Newberg is a neuroscientist and one of the world's leading researchers exploring the relationship between neuroscience and spirituality. His research includes taking brain scans of people in prayer, meditation, rituals, and trance states in an attempt to better understand the nature of religious and spiritual experiences. He has published over 250 peer-reviewed articles and 14 books. His work has been featured in Time, The Washington Post, and The New York Times, and he was listed as one of the 30 most influential neuroscientists alive today by the Online Psychology Degree Guide. In this conversation, we explore studies examining the relationship between mass meditation and the crime rate in various cities around the US, near-death experiences, Dr. Newberg's views on consciousness, the extent to which we can say that religious and spiritual experiences cause physical changes in the brain, the link between spirituality and mental health, and more. You can learn more about Dr. Newberg's research and books by visiting andrewnewberg.com. Okay, Dr. Newberg, welcome to the show. Thank you. you. Thanks for having me back. In uh, in preparing for this this conversation, I discovered your course with the Great Courses, and one of the things that I found really interesting about that was you mentioned a study that was done. I think it was in the early '90s in Washington, where they brought together, I think it was four thousand meditators into the into the city and then they measured the effect on crime rate right so right i wanted to ask you about you know the key findings from the study and what you make of them given your your background as a researcher in this area well you know these are very interesting studies that are looking at the effects of i mean ultimately they're looking at the effects of of human consciousness uh, on the world and we typically at least on a very kind of Western scientific perspective, think of ourselves as being inside of our head and our brain is is what's in there and uh, our consciousness is kind of connected to the brain uh, and produced by the brain. Um, there are certainly a lot of individuals and, and scholars out there who uh, have a different perspective and uh, it even derives in certain traditions like Buddhism and Hinduism, the idea that there's kind of a, a more universal consciousness which is out there that our brain then kind of connects with in some way. And so we kind of, it coalesces within us while we're alive. Um, and arguably speaking then, um, you know, consciousness can be what they refer to as non-local, meaning that I could somehow affect you in some way, or I can affect, you know, the world in some way. And there've been lots and lots of studies that have looked at these kinds of relationships. And you mentioned, you know, some, some very interesting studies where uh, they did this in a couple of cities where they would bring uh, a fairly large group of people, a couple thousand people, uh, into a city um, who were all going to meditate. Uh, Typically, they're meditating on very positive thoughts of compassion and so forth. And and then what they do is kind of an ad hoc uh, analysis. They look at, uh, well, what happened to crime rates? If you look, you know, the couple of months before, uh, the, the the month, you know, right after that or the week after that, and then, you know, what happens down the road. And um, there have been several studies which have shown that um, that when they do this, uh, that the crime rates seem to drop, which is 
very intriguing. You know, um, obviously, it's very challenging to know exactly what that means. It, it's happened in, uh, you know, more than uh, one study. And so as researchers, we certainly, you know, should be taking these kinds of studies um, seriously, we, but, you know, with, with appropriate caution, as we should do with every research study. Um, but they are fascinating. And, and they're, you know, they're analogous to some of the studies on intercessory prayer, where people are praying for each other, uh, you know, praying for other people. And, you know, there have been some studies that have shown that uh, if you're, it was a study on cardiovascular patients, and it showed that, um, that the people who were prayed for, uh, who didn't know they were being prayed for, you know, wound up getting out of the hospital about a half a day, you know, earlier than, than the people who were not prayed for. Um, uh, so, so the first big question, of course, is, you know, do we ultimately believe these studies? And again, you know, uh, I think they certainly have to be taken seriously. There's certainly a fair number of these studies which have shown an effect. Uh, it's pretty hard to explain it away completely, although, um, you know, certainly there are critics who try to. Um, and uh, and it raises a lot of fascinating questions. I mean, if, if we are to give credence to these findings, uh, what do they mean? And, um, you know, can we turn to these approaches to try to help make the world a better place? Um, uh, of course, you know, it, it raises intriguing methodological questions of, well, you know, what if you send one person and, you know, why, how many people do you need? Um, and do they have to be in the city? You know, could you have people in Los Angeles meditating for people in New York or something like that? Um, and, uh, you know, so how many people, how close do you have to be? Uh, and of course, there's the flip side too, you know, which is um, what about people who are hoping for the negative? Um, you know, I, I always sort of think we talk about this jokingly, you know, at a at some type of sporting event, a football game or something like that, where, you know, half the people are rooting for one team and half the people are, you know, and praying for them and half the people are praying for the other team. So, you know, it, does one team win or lose because of the prayer, uh, you know, and, and uh, the, the one, one side was more fervently praying than the other. Um, but one of the other things that that I have noticed um, in many of these studies, and you know, again, this is kind of a larger picture question, is that even if we acknowledge that these effects happen, they do seem to be relatively small. And so, um, you know, if, if for example, when they look at people trying to affect like a random number generator. Um, you know, you like if it's supposed to, uh, if fifty percent is the is the normal effect that you should see, then it's fifty one to forty nine percent. You know, it's it's a very tiny effect. Um, so you know, again, then the, the question is, you know, how ultimately relevant is it in terms of the overall effects that we see? Obviously, it's fascinating and it could be very paradigm shifting in terms of how we understand the mind and consciousness. Um, but but there is also always that sort of you know pragmatic perspective, and we talk about this in in the medical world all the time too, which is that you know if, if I find that meditation reduces your blood pressure by three points, that's not all that relevant if your blood pressure is sixty points too high. Um, but you know so so there's there's the statistically significant, and then there's the the clinically or practically relevant, and uh, and both are important questions for us to to address, but. It's it's certainly fascinating. It's something for us to think about, uh, and and ultimately, you know, even if it is a tiny effect, um, any effect at all is really kind of paradigm shifting. And and there are a lot of people who are are trying to explore this and trying to understand it. And, and ultimately, there's sort of the the question about mechanism, which is um, if consciousness can do this, what exactly is it doing? Is it is it energy? Is it is it you know reaching uh, connecting through uh, you know some universal consciousness, whatever that means? So there, there's a lot. 
lot of intriguing questions that come up about it. But but it, thank you for asking the question because it, you know these are very interesting studies that to me are also part of the world of neurotheology, which is you know how do we think about the mind and the brain and our spiritual selves and and consciousness. All you know all these concepts kind of uh, swirl around in terms of us trying to figure these things out. Well, I have to ask because you've spent decades in this field and you know, studying the relation between science, spirituality, and religion, and how, you know, spirituality and religion affect the brain and everything. What are your own views on what consciousness actually is? What's what's your take on that that small question? Yeah. <laughs> That's a, I, I can answer that in, in 10 seconds. Um, now, uh, I mean, you know, most simplistically speaking, I guess we typically talk about consciousness as awareness, uh, although that's really just substituting another word. Um, and so uh, you know, whether or not consciousness itself is a external thing uh, or is something that emerges from the complex processes of the human brain, um, I, I don't know. Um, you know, this this to me is part of the reason why I do the work in neurotheology, because uh, I, I think it is, you know, trying to understand consciousness is truly intriguing um you know no one has a clear answer for it one of the the questions that i always challenge my students with especially if, if, when they're very uh, materialistically oriented i'll say well you know in the brain you have um you know, you have your your neurons, uh, you have uh, depolarizations of the cell membrane, you have sodium and potassium rushing across that cell membrane, you have metabolic activity, you have neurotransmitters being released across synapses, you have electrical changes going on, and, uh, you know, and blood flow and, and all this stuff happening. So where in all of that are your thoughts? Where in all of that is your consciousness? And of course, there is no clear answer to that question. Um, you know, if, if we say, well, the consciousness is within the, the neurons. Well, does that mean that one neuron has consciousness? 20 neurons have consciousness? A billion neurons has consciousness? Um, so, you know, we, we don't really know. And um, uh, in some of my early work uh, that um, where I was really trying to, to look at this in a little bit more detail, um, you know, on kind of, a, at least on a very basic level, um, we have two ways of kind of thinking about what the universe itself is made of. Um, so one of them is that it's made of matter and energy. And so it's sort of the matter material perspective of things. And of course, that's very helpful in terms of, you know, where do stars and planets come from and, and you know, where do the amino acids and DNA come from and so forth. Uh, but as I was just talking about, you know, how do you go from stuff which does not have consciousness to stuff that does have consciousness? Um, now, of course, we, we have a similar kind of question when we talk about, I mean, uh, atoms themselves, we don't typically consider to be life. Um, but if you put enough of them together in a certain way with membranes and organelles and, and uh, you know, different um, uh, pumps and pores and, and, and uh, uh, you know, all the different uh, uh uh, enzymes and so forth, eventually something becomes living. Uh, but, you know, and then you've got bacterial living versus complex organism living. Um, and, you know, how does how does that all happen? Um, so, you know, there's really some challenging questions from that perspective. Uh, the flip side is that we say, well, the universe really derives from consciousness. Consciousness is really the primary stuff of the universe, um, certainly consistent with many of the religious and spiritual traditions, even, even monotheistic traditions. I mean, basically, if you, you know, are a subscriber to the Bible, um, God creates the universe really from God's consciousness, uh, you know, uh, so, um, 
And uh, and certainly if you come from more uh, Buddhist or Hindu perspective, there's the idea that there is a universal consciousness that um, that basically is the, the the foundation of the universe. Now, the nice thing about starting with that is that we get the idea, uh, it, it makes it easy to explain where consciousness comes from because the universe is conscious. So that's easy. Uh, but now you have the flip side problem, which is, so where does matter come from? What exactly does matter look like? And, uh, and how is that manifested out of consciousness? Does consciousness create matter as something separate? Is it some you know, other version of matter. Um, so, you know, in and of itself, it becomes very complicated to, you know, it, with either starting point to be able to answer kind of what the universe is about. And uh, my my best guess as an answer to your question, I guess, is that I ultimately think that matter and consciousness are kind of, uh, you know, two, two sides of the same coin, so to speak, uh, two ways of looking at the same thing. Um, you know, the analogy is is the idea of looking at uh, you know, light as both particle and wave kind of thing. Um, and I'm not saying that we you should use quantum mechanics as part of the explanation, although th that's another perspective that people often take. But um, but the idea that, you know, if you kind of look for matter, you find matter. And if you look for consciousness, you find consciousness. Um, and I think there's there's some degree of truth behind that. But uh, but to me, you know, this is part of the larger picture of what neurotheology itself is all about which is trying to understand the nature of the the mind and brain in relation to spirituality, religion, consciousness, um, you know, where all of these different pieces fit in uh, is extremely challenging. And a lot of times, and maybe the last way I'll answer your question is that uh, for me to answer the question, I may ultimately need to throw it back to you and say, well, how are you defining consciousness? And then I can kind of tell you you know, whether or not that's what consciousness is. Um, and, and we run into that problem as well, because if we are to define consciousness as, um, you know, something that derives from from the material brain, then we think about it one way. If we say consciousness is is a universal uh, awareness, then we define it another way. And, and we see these kinds of definitional issues coming up in neurotheology all the time. Uh, you know, what is the soul? What is uh, the mind? What is the spirit? And so forth. Um, you know, we can define those on theological grounds, philosophical grounds, scientific grounds, uh, and, uh, and, and each person and each perspective uh, will have a different take on it, uh, which makes it challenging and fun and exciting. But, um, you know, the, these are the larger questions that that we have to, to think about. But it'll be studies like the one that you first mentioned, um, studies of near, you know, near death experiences are another really interesting area of potential research because people have the experience of getting outside of their body. And if that's the case, then that would imply that consciousness can get outside of the body. That's what's felt in near death experiences. Uh, and there are some uh, very uh, formal approaches which are being taken right now in certain studies to try and nail that down and see if we can really, you know, demonstrate that. So, so we'll see. Uh, but obviously, you know, it'd be very exciting if we could ultimately show that consciousness, uh, you know, is something that extends beyond just the material realm. But at the moment, we don't know that for sure. So you mentioned near-death experiences there, and there are a lot of people report on these experiences, and a lot, of, a lot of them report back having similar kind of things happen, right. which is inter which is interesting. Um, Fascinating. Can you, can you tell us about maybe some of the the common things that people report back and also why do you think these experiences are so transformation 
transformational for people? Because often people have one and then they'll completely change their lives afterwards. So what do you think might be happening there? Well, um, the, the easier question is 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 what seems to happen. Um, you know, uh, people over the the last maybe twenty or thirty years who have analyzed the the, the reports of so many people with near death experiences do talk about certain core elements of these experiences, and uh, uh, it actually sort of uh, many of them start with the knowledge of the death. You know that 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 this is is a, some type of terminal event for a person. Um, uh, another very, and, and not all of these elements happen for everyone, but there's a lot of similarity, a lot of commonality. So uh, a lot of times people then have an experience of kind of going through a tunnel, uh, if you will, they feel that they're kind of proceeding through a tunnel. And um, uh, towards the end of that tunnel, um, sometimes they have the experience of uh, interacting with other beings. Um, sometimes those other beings are are deceased individuals, sometimes that they know people will say i you know saw my grandfather or i saw my uncle or something like that who died 10 years ago um sometimes it, it could be a religious figure um so sometimes they feel that they come in contact with jesus or buddha or something like that uh and then um ultimately they have this experience of of entering into this realm of light uh which is usually the most beautiful imagery and and um uh, experiences that they ever have uh, at some point, there's kind of a threshold where if they go beyond that, then they're sort of there. And if they, but they, they some some decision is sort of made, so to speak, where they either stay where, you know, in, in the afterlife experience or they come back. And um, sometimes that's it is a, a conscious decision. People will say, I, I felt like, you know, I had to come back from my family or something like that. I wasn't ready to do this yet. Uh, other times it feels like it's sort of decided for them. Um, but either way, you know, then they 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 come back and um, but um, but again uh, and and then a couple of other common elements that are reported are this feeling of kind of you know floating outside of the body, often getting up into like the corner of the room uh, and being able to look down and seeing the you know the doctors and nurses working on them or or whatever's going on. Um, sometimes they can describe you know this nurse had red hair or the doctor had a beard or you know whatever. Um, and, um, and so they can have certain descriptions, uh, of the people in the room. Sometimes people talk about going into other rooms and some they'll, they'll feel that they can see the patient who is in, you know, the room next door or something like that. Um, and so, you know, again, from a perspective of consciousness, these are fascinating because there, there seems to be these elements of kind of getting outside of the brain, uh, of the mind, you know, being able to uh, persist or consciousness being able to persist after the death of the brain. Um, now, you know, there are some really interesting issues with that because um, we don't fully know if the brain is truly dead. And so, um, and, and I mean, obviously, to some degree, it isn't because they do come back. Um, and uh, and of course, we have never heard from somebody who doesn't come back. So we don't know what happens beyond that. But, um, you know, you could try to associate some of these experiences with with natural brain processes, um, the tunnel experience. One of the things that I've proposed at times is that, you know, we have a visual cortex and um, the center of the visual cortex 
is the center of our vision. So we lose our periphery first uh, as we lose blood flow. Um, you know, the, it's the core areas that get most of the blood flow. So if you die and now you stop blood flow to the brain, the core areas are going to survive last. And which means that you're going to get sort of progressively into the feeling of a kind of tunnel. You're going to lose your peripheral vision and just focus on the core. So, you know, you can try to explain that. Um, we've all had dream experiences where we see deceased relatives and things like that. So, you know, could this represent the evoking of some memory of a grandfather or or something along those lines in much the way we might see somebody who's died uh, in a dream, possibly. Uh, and um, And of course, um, you know, so, so there are some ways of explaining at least some of the elements. Now, again, uh, if we can truly verify, and, and there are people who've been trying to do that in a really formal way, that when they float up to the top of the ceiling, um, you know, they can see what's going on. If we can really verify that this has happened, then it really does imply that the, the, the person's mental processes, consciousness, whatever you want to call it, um, has actually been able to leave um, the body. And again, it may depend a little bit on, on what is happening. One could potentially be, uh, you know, in a near-death state, but we our ears are open. So maybe we can hear what people are saying and kind of infer what they do or what they're looking like. Uh, but again, if you could truly identify, one of the, the studies that has been looking at this um, and I don't, as far as I know, I don't think they've had any, you know, true hits yet, so to speak, um, is where uh, they go to like trauma bays and and uh, and emergency rooms where they know that people are more likely to have a near-death experience. And above where the person's bed would be, they would put like a shelf. And on the flip side of that, they would have some kind of photograph or image or something like that. You know, I'm making up one now, but, you know, let's say like a picture of the Eiffel Tower or something like that. So now if, if a person reports that they had a near-death experience in that room, you could say, well, did you see anything? And if they say, yeah, you know, it was weird. I, I saw a picture of the Eiffel Tower, you know, okay, now you know <laughs> that because uh, there would be no way for them to know that that was there. And, um, and so I know some investigators are kind of working on that. But um, anyway, so all of that kind of, you know, helps us to try to figure out what's going on from a brain perspective, as well as from the perspective of what these experiences actually represent. Um, you know, you mentioned the transformative element. And uh, in, in, in our most recent uh, book, we talk about the varieties of spiritual experiences and near-death experiences certainly fall into that category. And um you know, uh, we don't fully know the neurophysiology of how these uh, experiences transform people, but that does also seem to be a pretty universal uh, characteristic of all of these different, very, very intense spiritual, mystical, near-death types of experiences, where it really transforms them. And when we ask people about that, it changes the way they think about their job, about their lives, about their relationships. They don't fear death anymore. Um, but what we don't fully know is, is exactly how that happens. Cause it's not typically how we think of the brain working. You know, normally we learn things over long periods of time. When you learn mathematics, you start learning addition and subtraction and division, and then you kind of work yourself up to algebra and calculus. Um, it's not like you just, you know, walk into class and suddenly, you know, you, you know how to, to, to do, you know, uh, uh, quantum mechanics or something like that. Um, but here it does seem to be almost that kind of experience where in moments, um, you know, literally seconds or minutes, uh, it really changes the complete way a person thinks about the world and whether or not, 
Um, it literally rewires the brain. You know, maybe there are connections that were sort of there, but um, now they become kind of reconnected in ways that weren't there before. Or whether there these connections were always there, and uh, much like you know a video game where you unlock a new player type of thing, um, you know maybe these experiences do that in some way. But uh, the problem is, of course, that we never really know when these experiences are going to happen. So we don't have, we never have the pre condition of the person. We always get the post condition when they had the experience, and so we don't know. You know, while they tell us that they have been transformed, we don't know exactly what that means in terms of you know being to, able to truly evaluate them before and after. So scientifically, methodologically, it is it is very difficult to do that. It's, it's wild speculation. I'm just sort of thinking out loud here, but like, you know, we've all got these kind of mental models and maps that help us to kind of navigate the complexity of reality, and it seems that experiences like this or even a psychedelic experience, it's almost like a disc cleaner for those maps and models that allow people to maybe form new connections and new maps following the experience just because it's such a shock to the system. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, part of uh, what that I've hypothesized in, in some of this um, and myself and my colleagues, uh, you know, one of the, the neurophysiological changes that we see um, uh, when we talk about different parts of the brain, and, I, and we talk about you know uh, very complex networks of the brain that are involved in just how we work in general and uh, become involved in these kinds of experiences. And what we've noticed with a lot of spiritual experiences, very intense ones, is that they tend to be associated with a decrease of activity um, in the frontal lobes uh, behind the forehead. And this is kind of interesting. So, you know, normally the frontal lobes turn on when we are concentrating, when we are doing something purposeful. Uh, if I'm trying to solve a math problem or something like that, then my frontal lobe turns on to try to do that. Uh, and, and in fact, even when people are doing spiritual practices like meditation or prayer, we typically see an increase of activity in the frontal lobes. But when people have these very profound spiritual experiences, part of what they ex part of what they experience is a, a kind of a feeling of surrender, a feeling of letting go. And we have some evidence to suggest that the, the, when they feel that, that the frontal lobe activity actually drops, you know, drops even below kind of the normal level that they are. So that's part of what helps us to feel, you know, helps the person to feel that they're not making it happen, that they're kind of along for the ride, so to speak. But it may have an ancillary effect, which is very much like what you just described. Um, the way I, I describe this more simplistically is that, you know, part of what the frontal lobes also do are what are called our executive functions. So they kind of keep our lives organized and they help us, you know, keep our checkbook here and keep our, you know, what we need to do for our home here and what we need to do for our work here and what we need to do for our family here. And, you know, to sort of use an analogy, I mean, it's sort of like, you know, a big file cabinet and the frontal lobes kind of keep everything in their files. And so when we, you know, it's time to deal with the house, uh, we take out our house file and we say, okay, you know, I got to call the, the roofing person to fix the roof. And then we put that back and then, oh, you know, I got to, uh, you know, I, I got to go to the supermarket. What do I need at the supermarket? I take my supermarket folder out. Um, when the frontal lobe drops, it's sort of like you've kind of thrown all the files up in the air um, because it, they're no longer under any control. And now, you know, as you start to kind of come back from that experience, you're now trying to like put all the files back in as quickly as you can. And obviously it doesn't organize it quite the same way as it did before. And I think in that regard, um, you know, in, in that kind of an, an analogy, uh, that's kind of what we see happening that you sort of, like you said, they kind of scramble things up a little bit and then, you know, put back in uh, a, a kind of a novel way of thinking about it, which also 
includes the content of the experience, which is very important. So previously we we did have, you know, house, children, you know, dogs, market, you know, job and all that. And it was all very separated. Uh, one of the other typical elements of these experiences is a sense of oneness, a sense of connectedness or unity. And so now suddenly, you know, they're not these individual distinct things, but they all kind of blend together. So we understand them differently and we understand how we interact with them differently. And we understand how we interact with the world differently. We, we feel that we're part of the world instead of we're just me, you know, trying to, to manage the world. And uh, that really can create, you know, very, very different kinds of perspectives on how to, to lead one's life. And I, I think that's in, in large part how we start to see these kinds of experiences affect people. And, and it even goes back a little bit to your very first question that, you know, if, if through bringing thousands of people into meditation, um, you know, are they able to affect that kind of response, even in, you know, other people, um, you know, if so, then, you know, you're creating at least some transformational piece uh, that can extend even beyond your own being. And, um, and if that's the case, then, uh, the world certainly can use more more compassion and love uh, these days. So uh, maybe we'll we'll find some ways of doing that. <laughs> Super interesting. Um, there's a just something that comes to mind here. Um, there's a philosopher called uh, Bernardo Castro. He he's got a school of philosophy called analytical idealism. And one of the things he talks about is like it's just an interesting thing to think about that often experiences that lead to a reduction in brain activity enhance can enhance um the quality of conscious experience things like psychedelics sometimes can reduce brain activity in certain areas near-death right. experiences etc cetera, etc cetera. so it's just an interesting thing to think about that a, re a reduction in brain activity can actually lead to an expan expansion of awareness you know um yeah well and I, and I think that as you said i mean that that is part of our models of of what's going on uh we you know we would expect to see decreases of activity uh, in the frontal lobes, decreases of activity in the parietal lobes in the back of the brain, which are part of partly responsible for our our sense of self. And so, you know, when that area begins to decrease, we kind of lose that that sense of self, that that the, the boundary between ourself and the world. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think that there probably are some fairly substantial decreases that occur. And, uh, and that may have a lot to do even ultimately with what goes on, what's called the default mode network, which is the network of structures that are on when we're not doing anything. And uh, there's been some interesting studies on practices like mindfulness and yoga, which have shown that uh, they alter the default mode network. And, um, and so, uh, you know, and plus we have data that show not only that, but changes, you know, in some of the neurotransmitter systems, including some of the ones that are associated with psychedelics that are part of these experiences. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think that there is definitely the ability for us to, to think about what are these shifts going on in the brain and how they relate to the ultimate outcomes, because, uh, you know, uh, we wrote a book called um, How Enlightenment Changes Your Brain. And enlightenment is kind of an interesting term because it can refer to the moment of enlightenment. Um, and um, uh, in which case, you know, these experiences that we're just talking about. But then there is the, you know, experiencing enlightenment, you know, perpetually. Um, that They are in a state of enlightenment uh, as well as an experience of enlightenment. And so the state of enlightenment is is that new transformed perspective on the world. And um, 
Uh, and so, you know, very, very interesting in terms of how we start to think about the, the momentary effects versus the long-term effects. And that has a lot to do uh, with how we, how we understand what these experiences are ultimately about and how they change people. Now, now I want to start talking maybe about religion, Dr. Newberg, and uh, what's so interesting about it is on the one hand, a religion can lead to someone like a Mother Teresa, you know, like an incredible, compassionate person that wants to just to serve others and um, someone like that. And then on the other hand, it can lead to a suicide bomber that wants to, you know, it can lead to terrorism. So what are the major differences based on what you've studied between the Mother Teresa and the, the suicide bomber? Well, the short answer is we don't fully know. You know, we don't fully know why why you know one person finds that you know, a, a compassionate perspective to be m more you know acceptable than uh, a destructive perspective. Um, we know that the areas of our brain, particularly a very small area called the hypothalamus, um, the the pleasure areas of the brain are right next to the fear areas of the brain, and so you know shifting a few cells one way, you know, to the left or to the right. Uh, could have a very big impact on whether so, you know how somebody reacts and responds to to threats and 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 various things in the environment in terms of taking a more you know aggressive uh, you know negative reaction to them versus a more positive constructive reaction to them. So some of that may be embedded within each one of us, you know, maybe even from birth, and and it may have to do not only with you know where some of these cells are, but also um, how different receptors work in our brain. You know whether or not uh, you know, dopamine areas and serotonin, you know, people who are more sensitive to them, less sensitive, uh, you know, there's certainly some evidence that that these different types of neurotransmitters can have an effect on just kind of our overall how we are as people. Um, so so that that's one part of the answer. Uh, another part of the answer, which actually stems from a lot of my earlier research, um, has to do, it goes back a little bit to the point I was making a few moments ago about that sense of oneness or connectedness. Uh, on one hand, that sounds like a great thing. Uh, and, you know, it's great to feel that we're connected to humanity, to the universe, to God, whatever it is, that, that, that that's a, generally a very good feeling. Um, but there's, there's an interesting problem that comes up. And uh, I've talked about this in, in a lot of my uh, previous works that, that, when you have this sense of oneness, um, there's a continuum. And so, you know, you, you have kind of our everyday world where everything has its own individual things. There's me, there's a computer, there's you. Um, each of these have are, are separate, um, multiple objects that are distinct. Uh, ultimately, as you kind of progress, so to speak, down a continuum of unitary experiences, um, you can have, you know, a variety of, of interim stages, so to speak. So there could be romantic love being, you know, deeply connected to another person and you feel at one with that other person, or maybe at one with your family, you know, that, that you're all part of the same, the same thing. Um, but then as you go, you know, further, uh, you can ultimately get to more profound spiritual experiences, feeling connected to a community, feeling connected to the world and so forth. Um, and so what's interesting about that is that when you feel connected to something, that becomes your your reality. And so your family, you know, can be your 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 reality. And 
what these kinds of practices and especially rituals do is they make us feel connected to that. They they break our, our parietal lobe down, you know, they reduce the parietal lobe activity, they break down that self-other distinction, and we feel connected to something. But the question is, what do we feel connected to? And so if it's just our family, then anything outside of that family is, you know, it becomes a kind of us versus them. And of course that us versus them can, can keep changing depending on, you know, whether it's the family, the community, um, you know, one of, one of my favorite examples is to think about it from the perspective of like sports, you know, uh, and, uh, you know, take, take, uh, take football, whether you take American U S football or, or world football, um, you know, each town has their team. And so, yeah, in fact, you might start with, with the schools. Maybe you have two high schools or something like that. And so I, you know, my high school, we hate the other high school team, but, um, but we're all part of the same town. So when we have our, you know, our town's team or our city's team, all of us are for the city's team, but we hate the other city, you know, the, the, the city, ne you know, next to us. However, when you go to, you know, the world cup or something like that, now, you know, all of our cities, we're all together. Now we're fighting the other countries, you know, and someday if if we find alien species and, you know, maybe it's the whole earth, you know, versus the other, uh, uh, you know, the other uh, teams from around the, the galaxy, so to speak. So, um, so part of what becomes interesting is, you know, there's a lot of antagonism between you and the other, but it depends on what that other is. And so ultimately for somebody like a Mother Teresa, where, uh, you know, arguably speaking, uh, you know, she has no other when it comes to humanity. She views all human beings as needing help, as, you know, being in the same boat. And she's part of that boat. And she's going to do what she can because she's part of everyone else and everyone is part of her. Um, however, if you do get a group that is more isolated, and what, again, what's interesting, really important is that it, it actually has to do more with the ideological perspective rather than you, you could be a group of 10 people who all feel connected to the universe. Um, or you could be a group of 10 people who are connected to the group and everyone out there is, you know, against your group. Um, and so if you, you know, have the ideology of it's my group versus the world, then you wind up having some, some very substantial antagonism between people who are out there who have different ways of thinking about the world, different ways of looking at the world and different ways of looking at your group. If they don't include you as part of their group, um, then, you know, you get intergroup aggression, even though the intragroup within the group uh, is reduced by these kinds of practices and beliefs and, and the rituals that are part of them. So I think that goes a long way of trying to help us understand that when groups become isolated and when they begin to develop that us versus them mentality with regard to other people, then you see much more hatred, anger, you know, outward violence. Whereas if you have a group of people who say, we're part of the, you know, we're part of the human family, we're part of all of humanity, then it, it you know, in those practices and rituals that breed compassion and breed connection and so forth, um, those are going to be the ways in which we look at things. And, and of course, in today's world with all the divisiveness, I mean, this is exactly what we see happening. And, and in fact, in many ways, this is unfortunately how social media sort of works because you're sitting there on your phone, you know, constantly kind of being fed the stuff that, that, 
you know, supports your us versus them mentality. Um, and if we can start to change that into, you know, the, the larger groups and the larger connections and so forth, then we hopefully have, you know, a, a, a path out of this kind of divisiveness, you know, that's, that's being idealistic, but, uh, but, you know, that would, to me would be the ways in which we ultimately need to get people to think whether we can do that or not. Then that's part of what I think neurotheology has a challenge to do, which is what are the ways in which we can try to do that? That's uh, this is a fascinating subject. Um, and I th am I right in saying that you co-authored your most recent book with David Yaden? Is that right? Correct. Yes. He has written a paper on the overview effect, the experience that astronauts um, have whenever they leave Earth. They they see the planet as one system. They have a whole change in identity, and then they come back, and it influences their behavior. And they come back. They get involved in a lot of environmental activities and everything else as well. And a friend of mine, Anahita Nizami, she's developed a virtual reality a version of this that aims right. to sort of give people a similar experience. And it's just, it's sort of similar to what you're talking about. You know, it's a potential way to sort of shift the the identity into one that sees that we're just, we're all in the same boat here as opposed to us and them, you know? So it's an interesting thing to think about. That's right. And, 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 you know, I mean, that and the over, again, there's there's probably different ways of doing this. I mean, they can be through psychedelics, they can be through meditation, it can be taking people into space and being able to show them that, you know, in that regard. And so there are a lot of different ways in which we might ultimately be able to achieve that. Um, but I, I want to bring up one other point, which I think is just worth mentioning here, um, is that the other piece to all of this, and I kind of alluded to this for a second, is is the ideological perspective that a person takes. And you know, talking, about, you maybe think about this when you're talking about being in the same boat. Because on one hand, all of our brains are in the same boat, and what I mean by that is, is that um, we are, you know, barring the earlier conversation we had about whether our consciousness goes beyond our brain, but for the most part, you know, we have access to the information we have access to. And not to sound circular there, but um, but it, it is an incredibly small percentage of everything that's going on in the universe. I mean, we have access to like 0 0.00, throw in, you know, another thousand zeros, one percent of everything that's going on in the universe. You and I at the moment know what's happening, you know, in our little rooms. And I don't know, you know, what my wife is doing in the room next door. I don't know what's going in the apartment next door, the house next door, the town next door, the galaxy next door, you know. So um, so all I have access to is what's happening around me right now. And our, all of our brains wind up taking the whatever information we can somehow grab onto and try to create for us a perception of the world uh, and, and create for us our perspective on reality. And it might be a religious one, it might be a non-religious one, it might be one political perspective or another, whatever it is, um, but we have this way of looking at the world. Now, we ultimately create a, a kind of belief system that works for us. We wrote a, a book called Why We Believe What We Believe, and we create this belief system that works for, you know, each one of us does it so that it works for us. It is based a lot on the things that we have come in contact with. So our, our parents to start with, our, our friends, colleagues, you know, whatever. Um, but ultimately we kind of have our belief system that we hold. And then that may become the belief system of just us. It may become the belief system of our group. Um, and so, uh, what's interesting about that though, is that now, you know, take it that there's an external group compared to my group and they have a different belief system than I do. So I have one of two options, either, you know, either I'm right and they're wrong or they're right and I'm wrong. Now, you know, which one is my brain going to choose? Well, most, you know. If I'm wrong and they're right, 
then my brain is in a very bad place because that means I don't understand the world very well. And that's going to make me very anxious and upset. And it's going, you know, it's very disturbing if I don't think I understand the world properly. So it's far easier for me to say and far more calming to, for me to say, no, 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 I, I do understand this. They're clearly wrong. Uh, you know, I'm right. And that's also part of why, again, you know, going to social media or whatever, uh, if, if I, you know, am one political party and I see an article that that supports my political party. Oh, yeah, that makes sense to me because that uh, my my beliefs are 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 um, you know are pacified and and I feel good about that. And if it's if it supports that my my political party is not so good or the other party is better, oh, well, no, 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 that can't be true. You know, that can't be true. It's false. You know, I need to fact check it. You know, whatever it is. Um, and so, but but as this progresses, you know, when it initially happens, if you and I had different beliefs, and you know, maybe my first thought is, oh, well, you know, you just don't understand. You know, let me explain it to you. Um, so it might start off very calmly, but but over time, you know, if you're not, if you still hold your belief and I still hold mine, which is again what we're most likely going to do, you know, I'm gonna well, you know, why would he be telling me something that I know is wrong, I know is false? You know, there must be something wrong with him. There must be, you know, he must be a bad person and maybe an evil person. Uh, maybe somebody who I should get rid of because, you know, clearly they, they're they bad, evil, and they don't know what's going on. You know, so you can kind of see where these very aggressive, you know, negative behaviors can start to arise, especially if we hold on to our beliefs very strongly and we think about them in the context of a limited group as opposed to a large, you know, the larger humanity. But anyway, I just thought that that was another interesting way of kind of looking at this issue about compassion versus aggression and things like that, which is that, you know, it's not just the groups that we have, but it is the ideologies and, and how our brain kind of thinks through uh, what information we want to keep and what information we want to reject. And we see it in everything, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's religion, it's politics, it's science. Uh, you know, I mean, I always love it when people say that scientists are, you know, we should follow science because it's so objective. Scientists, science is done by scientists who last time I checked were human beings. And, um, and you know, I have just seen in my 30 year career, you know, so many times where scientists get so na nasty and negative to people who have a new way of thinking about things, um, because it doesn't fit the existing paradigm, only to figure out, you know, 10 years down the road, 15 years down the road, that oh, that is the, the right way to think. But at the beginning, they're they're kicked out and they're thrown out of the, you know, the labs and and they're mocked and and all, you know, and it's again, I mean, I think we all have to, to me, that's part of what neurotheology is about, which is being a little bit more open and understanding and compassionate about uh other other points of view, which I think are very important for us to take into consideration. Definitely. And I can just tell from the way you answer questions is that you you try to integrate as many different perspectives as possible, which is so rare. Like I interview a lot of people, it's not that common, you know. So that's interesting. Um, it's been part of part of what I think the field is all about. It's been part of my own personal experiences of 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 sort of how I looked at things. And and uh, in a book I wrote called How Enlightenment Changes Your Brain, I talk about some of my own experiences of 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 sort of you know uncertainty and doubt. And, um, you know, being re recognizing the limitations that we all have um, and and the genuineness with which people do develop their belief systems. And so it has made me very, um, you know, or at least I try to be as open and understanding of other perspectives as I possibly can. How does God change the brain? And <laughs> should atheism come with a health warning, mental and physical? Well, you know, I... I, I 
from my book, How God Changes Your Brain, um, the answer is there's lots of ways. You know, it, it is a very complex um, interaction, and, and it really shouldn't be a surprise to people, I think. You know, when you think about religious uh, people who are religious, when uh, you talk about religious practices, religious experiences, um, <laughs> sometimes they evoke thoughts and, and sometimes they evoke feelings, experiences. So, you know, sometimes you feel it in your in your head. You think about something. Sometimes you feel it in your body. You, you know, you feel all the way down uh, into your heart and your toes. Uh, and so, you know, there are many different parts of our brain that ultimately um, help us to uh, to think about um, what's going on in terms of, uh, you know, how, how our religious and spiritual beliefs do affect us. But, uh, I would say that, you know, there isn't just, I, I think maybe the big answer to your question is, is that there's not just one part of the brain that gets involved, but there are, so, you know, it, it basically, there's so many different parts that it's really your whole brain. You know, the whole brain is interconnected with each other. And, um, and as an integrative medicine doctor, I recognize the brain's connection to the body. So, so if there's a spiritual part of ourselves, it is all of us. And, um, and in that regard, religious and spiritual beliefs and attitudes and practices really do affect us uh, very, very deeply and very fully. Um, now, as far as, you know, religious versus non-religious, well, you know, there's certainly a lot of evidence to suggest that being religious can be beneficial for people. Um, you know, many studies have, have demonstrated that people who hold strong religious beliefs tend to have lower rates of depression and anxiety, a greater sense of meaning and purpose in life. But these are also have to be taken a little bit with a grain of salt because these are population-based studies. And so, you know, there are certainly plenty of uh, religious people who, who die young, and there's plenty of atheists who, who live to 100. Um, and, uh, you know, there's plenty of well-adjusted uh, atheists and, and plenty of uh, highly anxious or religious people. Um, but if you look at the populations, there's these kind of relationships that we can see. Uh, but part of what I also talk about in a lot of our research is that, I mean, I, I think ultimately everyone has a kind of spiritual side. Now, what I mean by that is not necessarily a supernatural side, but but that part that feels connected to something greater than the self. Um, and that, you know, I, I've seen so many people in the scientific world who feel connected to the natural world, they feel, you know, they re recognize that we're all connected as part of our environments as part of, you know, we, uh, when we eat, we have to eat animals and plants and, and they're part of the natural world and they have to grow and they need sunlight. And so like we're, we're, we're everything's a big interconnected uh, relationship. And so we can feel that and we can take a walk in the, you know, in the woods or a walk by the, the ocean and feel connected to that. We can do something creative and, uh, you know, feel, lose ourselves in music or art or, or, you know, literature or something like that. So, so there are, I mean, I, I think that to me is the, maybe the more important point, which is that, you know, if you are kind of a true materialist who feels no connection to anything else, um, that's probably not going to be so good for you. And maybe that should come with a health warning. But but just because you don't believe in, you know, God or a specific religious tradition um, doesn't mean that you can't engage, you know, the overview effect, um, as you mentioned. It doesn't mean that you can't feel connected to humanity, that you can't do charitable works, be compassionate. Um, you know, you certainly can do all of those things. And so there are many different ways of, of, of engaging that part of ourselves. Um, religious and spiritual traditions offer some, you know, wonderful ways of doing that. 
Um, but but they also come with their their issues and limitations. And so, you know, some people choose to do it uh, in their own unique way. And, and of course, there's a growing group of people who consider themselves spiritual, but not religious. And, you know, that that's part of the answer, I think, to to that overall question, which is people just need to find those ways of, of making that connection, even though it may not necessarily be to a specific tradition. OK, OK. Um, when I was preparing for this something that popped into my mind and again wild speculation but i wanted to just to get your thoughts on it um so obviously in psychology one of the most well-known theories is attachment theory and one of the things in attachment theory is that like for your psychological health it's really really important that you have a secure base like a social relationship that you can really depend on like like a rock in hard times right and i, I just thought I, I wondered have you thought much about any link between attachment theory in the sense that someone that has a religion or a, a deep sense of spirituality is that God in that context might act as a secure base and that might be very psychologically healthy and adaptive. What do you, what do you think about that? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, we actually, uh, I, I have at various times worked on, on some research articles and ideas that are related to uh, that idea and specifically thinking about attachment theory. Um, I've talked about this in the context of worship uh, and uh, you know what we what we do feel connected to and that foundation that becomes important. And um, uh, you know, as you mentioned, I mean, whether that ultimately is a person or uh, God, I mean, that that certainly can be a very important part of a person's life, and that can provide that foundation, which can be very very strong. So so yeah, I, I think that that is. Uh, a, a, a very important way of thinking about it. Um, I recently wrote an article about uh, identity and how we think about ourselves. And and again, you know, also that issue of sort of, you know, we're, we're, we're distinct, but then we need to connect and, and that ability to connect with something um, that provides that foundation becomes very, very important. And that can, you know, it can take different forms, uh, parents and, and friends and family, but certainly religious and spiritual, that sp religious or spiritual connection can be a very important part uh, of somebody's life. And, and they can turn to that uh, in in times of of difficulty, you know, dealing with health issues, you know, physical or mental health issues, dealing with life issues. Um, so yes, having those kinds of uh, foundations can be very very important. And uh, you know, it 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 brings up in many ways another point. Uh, again, as as an integrative medicine doctor, we frequently talk about how we care for people and that we have to think of ourselves along four different dimensions of the person. Um, we have the biological side, which is what kind of traditional the traditional medical establishment takes care of and gives you an antibiotic or a cholesterol medicine or something like that. Um, there's the psychological side dealing with stress, depression, anxiety, and things like that. There's the social side, and that's where things like attachment theory and, and the ability to have that strong social foundation, which, you know, there's no question that that is a very, very important source of health and well-being for people. And then the fourth dimension, of course, is the spiritual side. Um, so so trying to take it into consideration, all of them is very important. Uh, religious and spiritual systems um, tend to affect us on all these different levels. So as we've shown in our brain scans, they affect our biology. Uh, as we talked about, they can affect our sense of meaning and purpose, um, our feelings of stress, anxiety, our ability of coping. 
they provide wonderful social uh, interactions. And that could be a social interaction with a clergy member, with a community, with a congregation, with friends, family, who all share that common bond through a tradition. Um, that can be very, very important for people. And of course, it does have the spiritual element as well. So, so I think absolutely that um, you know we need to think about all those different components of who we are, all the different dimensions of who we are in terms of taking care of ourselves. We talk about this in a book called Brainweaver, uh, where you know the way to weave an optimal brain is to bring in all those different dimensions, all those different elements, and uh, exactly how one does it. You know, each person has to kind of find their own individualized path. But religious and spiritual traditions are certainly a very good path for a lot of people. Sure. Um, something else I'm kind of curious to ask. We've got a couple of minutes left, but uh, if I were to get you a an unlimited budget and a huge research team like you know so you could pretty much do anything research wise what would you uh work on well you know I, i've often thought of uh, that question um and uh the the, the main thought i kind of had is to think about it in kind of the human genome parallel uh pro you know the parallels of the human genome project which looked at all of our genes um, to me, I think it would be fascinating to look at all of the ways in which we engage uh, religious and spiritual beliefs. So it would be great to take every tradition, um, every practice within every tradition, every belief, you know, the, the specific beliefs of each tradition, look at them, brain scans of, of different, you know, many of those different things, uh, you know, surveys of people to understand what they feel, what they mean, uh, try to understand the, the differences, try to understand the similarities uh, across traditions, cultures, people, ages, genders, you know, all of that. Um, that and and obviously with a very strong eye on the brain and consciousness and trying to elucidate that. And and it, it it extends even into, as we've kind of touched on today, you know, the the experiences related to near-death experiences, psychedelic experiences. So all of the different ways in which people kind of engage that that religious and spiritual element of ourselves. Um, that is probably what I would love to do is to be able to kind of create that, that, uh, that, that genome concept, uh, in the context of religious and spiritual practices, you know, religious phenomena, religious and spiritual phenomena, uh, which again, uh, to me, you know, extends, uh, into, uh, many of the questions that we've addressed, including those about, you know, what is the nature of consciousness and how does that interweave with, you know, mystical experiences and spiritual experiences. And, uh, you know, the, the ultimate goal is, you know, how do we understand reality? And, um, and that to me is also some combination of these kinds of scientific pursuits, as well as philosophical and theological pursuits. And that's why I think neurotheology is so uh, important of a field, because it really helps us to bring together the, these two most powerful forces in human history, the, the science and technology on one side, the, the spiritual and, and religious on the other side, and, and help us to understand who we are and help us to understand reality. Definitely. Well, if there's any billionaires uh, listening, please direct your, direct your <laughs> funds to Dr. Newberg. Um, I'm ready. There's, about, there's about 50 questions I didn't get to ask you. Um, we've only scratched the surface here. So um, I just want to say a huge thank you for your time um, and all the work that you do and, and you're putting out into the world. It's fantastic. Um, where can people learn more? Where can they find you online? Your website is andrewnewberg.com. Is that right? Correct. andrewnewberg.com, N-E-W-B-E-R-G. Um, I'm also working on uh, my Instagram uh, presence. And so it's uh, a DR, Dr. 
uh, dot dr newberg um and so they can follow my philosophical musings there and uh trying to trying to find reality uh so um uh, and uh, we have lots more writings projects books coming out and uh so happy to come back and uh answer more questions uh later on and uh we'll see where we can take it thank you dr newberg thank you thank you for listening and i hope you enjoyed the show if you'd like to hear the full version, you can do so with the Weekend University Premium Membership. This gets you access to our mastered library of over five years of psychology conferences, including over 230 talks and interviews with the world's leading psychologists, professors, and authors, unlimited CPD certification, transcripts, quizzes, premium passes for our annual conference, online courses with Richard Schwartz and Deb Dana, and more. The cost is £97 for one year, which breaks down at around 27p per day. The best bit is you can try it out for 30 days completely risk-free as all orders come with a 100% money-back guarantee. If you're interested, please go to twumembers.com for more information.